warmth carries these consequences of worsened drought, more extreme rainfall, bigger and hotter wildfires, extreme heat, as well as sea level rise. And there are also other impacts, but these perils that have occurred are worsening and are very unfamiliar to humans. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park. Summer 2022 was one of the hottest summers on record, and intense heat waves have become a regular facet of the worsening global climate crisis. Alice Hill joins me on this episode to discuss a world overheating, its devastating impact on our health, infrastructure, and agriculture, and how we can best prepare for such record-breaking temperatures. Alice Hill is a David Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her work at the Council focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change. Hill previously served as Special Assistant to President Obama and as Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, where she led the development of national policy to build resilience to catastrophic risks, including climate change and biological threats. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. We have seen extreme weather events around the world as a result of climate change that have led to, you know, high loss of life, destruction of property. And these longer and hotter heat waves have notably become a regular feature of the climate crisis. So this is where I want to start our discussion. What do we mean by an overheating world? And why is this such a critical part of the wider discussion about climate change? Well, it doesn't sound like much when people talk about the increase in global average temperatures since pre-industrial times. And those temperatures uh, have risen uh, somewhere around 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius. But that may not sound like much. It has very significant impacts in the types of weather we see as well as sea level rise. And of course, the reason temperatures are going up is because carbon is accumulating along with other gases that trap uh, trap heat. They're forming this kind of blanket around the globe. And as that blanket thickens, as those greenhouse gas emissions thicken, it's like when your mother put or your father put a blanket uh, on you one cold night and you're underneath the blanket and then suddenly you're kicking it off because you've gotten hotter. And that's what's happening in the globe. We are trapping this heat and we are getting warmer. The warmth carries these consequences of worsened drought, more extreme rainfall called rain bombs, bigger and hotter wildfires that have their own weather, a fire nado, kind of like a tornado in a wildfire, extreme heat that is much higher temperatures and lasts a lot longer, as well as sea level rise. And there are also 
other impacts, but these perils that have occurred are worsening and are very unfamiliar to humans. They haven't occurred at the rate and intensity that they're occurring now in recorded history. So we have more ahead of worsening events because of that trapping of heat underneath this blanket of pollution, carbon, uh, carbon is carbon dioxide, as well as other uh, gases. Let's take a look back at the past few summers. So summer 2022, summer 2021. How have temperatures been in these summers compared to those in the past? Well, you're right to point to this summer. It has been an extraordinary summer. Unfortunately, I'm not sure it will be viewed as an extraordinary summer if from future, uh, in future years. But we have seen thousands of heat records broken across the globe. Now, typically with weather, you have records broken, but on average, you're going to have in a stable climate and a climate that's not warming, you would have heat records broken and cold records broken. So on average, it's staying about the same. And what we're seeing is many, many more heat records are being broken. Some extraordinary heat records, China had a heat wave that lasted over 70 days. And a historian, a meteorological historian, says that never in history has there been such, in recorded history, has there been such a long, intense heat wave. And of course, with heat, it causes uh, evaporation, which can worsen drought. uh, And it's very dangerous for health. And another remarkable aspect of this summer is how the heat waves really wrapped around the globe. Um, Pakistan and India faced record heat this uh, spring. Uh, And then as we moved around, we saw Europe also uh, experience record heat. We then saw and drought. uh, And then we saw, we've seen in the American West, the United States experience record heat. Uh, And heat is the most, um, the the thing that we know occurs most assuredly with climate change. Uh, And it will be longer, hotter heat waves that could be 20 degrees Fahrenheit from what a normal hot temperature would be during summer. That has big effects on human health. Uh, really uh, can be deadly for people, animals, and plants. As we talk about rising temperatures and its consequences, I want to explore more um, impact on our lives. How, How will daily life be impacted? And what are some health dangers that lie ahead with extreme heat? Well, it can simply get too hot to be safely outdoors for extended periods, say six hours or more. There's this phenomenon called the wet bulb temperature, and it has to do with the bulb and a wet rag, and I don't know all the dynamics by why it's called a wet bulb, but simply put, it is the temperature at which the human body, uh, as it perspires, can't perspire the heat away. Of course, perspiration helps us cool down, but if it's too humid and too hot outside, we can't cool down sufficiently. And then our body becomes overheated, which can lead to 
uh, heat stroke, which can lead to death. So this has profound impacts for people who work outside, gardeners, construction workers, those that can't be in air-conditioned places, and it has profound impacts for those places that aren't air-conditioned uh, and that will um, not be able to protect people from suffering really serious consequences. We will see uh, certain areas heat up more quickly, the Middle East, uh, Asia, South Asia, Africa, parts of Africa, and they will experience these really hot periods that are extremely dangerous. They'll also occur uh, in other parts of the world, but those areas particularly have been called out as at great risk. Discussions on how to respond to these trends have you know, centered around you know, the unequal distribution of the effects of climate change. What are the key variables? Is it geography, as you mentioned, or is it socioeconomic status? Well, geography is key. You know, when you look at climate change, it is global average temperatures. But in some areas, we're seeing a much greater increase in temperature. And surprisingly, the two areas that are seeing the greatest increase in temperatures are the Arctic and the Antarctic. Now, those areas aren't going to suffer uh, anytime soon uh, from wet bulb temperature, I don't believe, but they are warming very quickly, which has profound consequences for those areas, including uh, greater sea level rise, uh, as well as the possibility of uh, the tundra melting uh, or unfreezing and releasing large amounts of methane, which could heat us even further. So those areas have great challenges from climate change. But um, it's in these other areas that are already hot and humid that we will see the health impacts uh, so dramatically. And some of these areas have very little air conditioning, um, you know, and that includes um, developed areas. Um, I know that, um, for example, Canada, only 40% of the housing, I believe, has air conditioning. And uh, the International Energy Agency um, has estimated that less than a third of global households have access to air conditioning. With air conditioning, we also have challenges. If we all turn on our air conditioners, of course, it's a huge um, suck on our grid. And you see that across the globe, grids aren't prepared for that kind of energy demand. And therefore, places like California have to tell people, please power down your big appliances so that we have enough power to keep the rest of the power on so people can pump gas in their cars and, and uh, people who are ill can continue to have their medical devices operate at home that have to be plugged in, that kind of thing. So it puts a stress on our electric grid. Of course, there's a cost element here for those who can afford both the air conditioner and the cost of electricity. Uh, and uh, how is that electricity generated. If it's generated through fossil fuels, we have even more of this pollution forming around the globe, which will contribute to even more heating and make um, extreme weather even more dangerous going forward. So what you see now are cities responding by creating cooling centers. Uh, those are places that are air conditioned for people to go to. They're also increasing their, what's called their urban canopy, which is um, green, mostly trees, but sometimes it's green roofs, other things to 
lower the temperature in urban settings. Of course, in urban settings, buildings can be tight together. That cuts down on the breeze and there's a lot of concrete and concrete can absorb a lot of heat. If it's asphalt and black, that's even uh, more heat. So lots of thought about how do we cool ourselves down in the face of these really hot events and thinking about how we build um, so that if there is a power outage or if uh, people can avoid turning on air conditioning, can we have houses that allow a cross breeze or that have thicker walls so that they retain the cool from the overnight? Uh, taking a look at old building materials to learn how people dealt with heat in the past or, and old building methods. In fact, in California, they just uh, passed a building code uh, focused on keeping how people in houses safe during uh, times when electricity might not be available, sort of a passive uh, ventilation system within houses to keep people safe. So, you know, air conditioning may not be the be-all, end-all um, of address- addressing this issue. You know, if everyone uses air conditioning, it'll lead to grid failures. You also mentioned how current building designs are not suited to meet the rising temperatures. So more broadly speaking, is our infrastructure not built for prolonged hotter temperatures? What needs to change then? They are not, our, our infrastructure is not prepared. And this isn't a problem unique to the United States. It's a problem across the world. So that's why you see um, after a big event, uh, you will see infrastructure fail. Um, we've had a lot of examples just this summer. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi faced flooding. Uh, it uh, really affected their water treatment plant. So we have many um, thousands of people who had to use bottled water um, to just access basic water. Um, And then we see um, in, uh, for example, in uh, Puerto Rico, dramatic footage of this bridge that was built after Hurricane Maria and Irma swept across Puerto Rico in 2017. Now, during that event, Puerto Rico lost power for almost a year because its grid was too fragile. And that was the longest power outage in the history of the United States and the second largest in the world or longest in the world. But then a temporary bridge is built that after the bridge was ruined by the hurricanes in 2017, and we see this dramatic footage of that bridge being washed away. Now, that bridge wasn't high enough. They do have plans for a permanent bridge that will be higher, but it's just a clear example that even the infrastructure that we replaced to help us get through uh, can't withstand. Then you see the grid, struggling across the globe. For example, nuclear power had to shut down in France because the cooling waters got too warm for the power plant to be cooled. Uh, We saw in China, uh, which relies on hydropower, the waters got too low, so they had to switch to coal. Um, We see um, in the Western United States, 
wildfires causing some utilities to preemptively shut down power so that uh, a fallen pole doesn't, or transmission line doesn't ignite a wildfire. The systems that we have assumed a stable climate. It assumed that temperatures ranged within a certain range um, and that if you built your system to withstand the extremes of the past, the system would perform as expected. Well, if you do that now, as Puerto Rico did, and it just built the bridges it had before, that infrastructure is very likely to fail because the past is no longer a good guide for the future when the stable when the climate is no longer stable. And we have moved into a period of instability. We are rapidly, our climate is rapidly changing. In fact, it's surprised the velocity at which it's changed has surprised many climate scientists. They expected some of the changes we're seeing now further in, in future years rather than now. But they did expect the changes. It's just the timing of the changes. So we need to make sure all of our infrastructure is built for the future impacts of climate change but all of it right now is built for our past climate and that won't keep us safe. You mentioned droughts and regions that'll feel the brunt of the consequences of hotter temperatures. And I ask this as there are emerging and of course existing food security crises around the world today as a consequence of the ongoing war in Ukraine or civil wars. But will overheating exacerbate food insecurity? Well, these impacts, heating, flooding, will have dramatic effect on the food baskets of the world. Um, there are certain places in the world that generate uh, much of what we eat. And as those areas are impacted, it disrupts the supply chain of food. And when food availability constricts or, or gets um, tighter, there's trouble across the globe because food prices is one of the things that populations, people are very sensitive to. An area for all of us to watch is Pakistan. Now, Pakistan during its had terrible heat in the spring, and now this summer, its monsoons have caused dramatic flooding, so much rain falling at once, a third of the nation underwater. And one of the areas that's underwater, it produces about half the food for Pakistan. And those fields we probably are going to struggle to produce uh, sufficient food. So what does that mean for Pakistan going forward? And I would note uh, that Pakistan already has a very challenging economic environment. Its inflation rate is over 25%. It is deeply in debt uh, to the developed world, and that debt is like an albatross. It's seeking relief from that debt. Um, so how does it cope with uh, this kind of displacement of population? Millions were knocked out of their homes by the flooding and then the loss of crops. One of the fears, of course, you have with um, a country like Pakistan is, does this open up the opportunity for extremists to recruit? In fact, it 
likely does because in 2010, when Pakistan suffered less serious flooding than this year, the Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban, in fact, used that moment to increase its ranks and to build goodwill among the population. The government didn't respond quickly uh, and the Taliban moved in with supplies and support for people in very desperate straits. So with when food goes, it can lead to um, conflict. And I would just lastly point out, that's one of the causes of the Arab Spring was the rise in food prices. And then as we saw that um, uprising eventually spread um, to other parts and we had very serious consequences uh, stemming from that uh, as we saw much greater conflict from that initial um, increase in food prices. So, so far, we've discussed how summer 2022 was a record-breaking year and how extreme weather events have led to infrastructure failures and how our current way of life may not be so resilient to this new climate reality and hotter and longer summers. We also talked about how droughts and other consequences of extreme weather events have the potential to exacerbate extremist ideologies. I want to turn to some of the policy solutions to you know this crisis, but before doing that, I wonder if a consensus, a global consensus, has emerged on the need to address extreme heat as a permanent reality. I don't think we have a consensus yet. Um, I think the United States is a bit of an outlier how deeply divided politically we are, uh, first of all, on what should be done about climate change and even uh, whether these events are uh, climate driven uh, in some instances or that, it, that it's a, an area that needs attention. Um, so I don't think there's a consensus out there. I do think with the events of this summer, there is an opportunity for greater action on heat in particular. Uh, it was Rahm Emanuel, who I remember first hearing the expression, never let a good crisis go to waste. Of course, he was President Obama's first chief of staff. And by that, he meant after a crisis, uh, there's an opportunity for change. And as we saw heat just wash across the globe, uh, we've seen resilience centers spring up. We've seen cooling centers spring up. We've been seeing greater attention for early warning to make sure that people understand that a heat wave is coming. In California, uh, we see a ranking of heat waves. There's been a move in other areas of the world to name heat waves. Uh, so we've seen action in response uh, to the greater heat that we're seeing. Is it uh, enough? Is it coordinated? Um, will it get us to where we need in the time uh, frame that we have? 
I think we could do a lot more. I'll put it that way. Um, it is uh, still uh, an area where we lack the workforce that truly understands how climate change will affect communities and how it worsens over time so that if you don't consider the future risks of climate change, you may well have made an investment today that will turn out to be very poor, a poor investment in the future. It's the bridge that washes away. Right. So, you know, there needs to be a lot more done. And you mentioned, you know, air conditioning centers, early warning systems, naming heat waves, you know, some of the measures that have already been taken um, in some parts of the world. But are there broad strategies and vision to abide by in adopting these different adaptation strategies? Yes, uh, there are. One of the challenges with adaptation is that it has to be very localized. Climate change is a global problem. We're creating this blanket across the globe that's causing us to heat up. But the heat causes impacts on a very localized basis. So there, we see global solutions to cut carbon emissions. And by the way, that's where most attention has gone to date when we talk about climate change. The adaptation has to uh, be uh, at a local community, a regional level, and there's been far, far less money, research, interest uh, in figuring out how do we cope with climate change. And there's a whole history to that. Early on, uh, those working on climate change didn't want to discuss adaptation because their hope was we would cut the emissions sufficiently that we wouldn't really have to get to adaptation. And we see the legacy of that still in uh, how we are approaching this, for example, in the United States. We don't even have an overall plan uh, at the national level to help guide the federal government, much less uh, help state, local, tribal, territorial governments and private sector understand how what the federal government will do to help communities, uh, what it won't do. Uh, we just don't have that kind of plan in place. Now, other countries have done more. China just issued a second version of its plan, original version published in 2013. And now this new version calls for a climate resilient nation by 2035. Uh, and we see other plans in other developed countries, Japan, EU, and then countries within the EU doing a lot. But it's still very much at the nascent uh, stage. It's still um, more thinking about this conceptually. And there is a long way to go uh, before we can um, figure out the kinds of solutions we need. I will say that one interesting aspect of climate change, both on the mitigation and the adaptation side, is that much of what we're talking about has never been done before by humans. This is a problem that humans haven't really had to confront. So as each community figures out its flood problem, uh, they could probably benefit from talking to other communities that have similar problems so that each isn't forced to reinvent the wheel. Unfortunately, we don't really have that kind of sharing going on yet so that different countries can learn from each other what works and doesn't work. And if we had that, I believe it would accelerate 
the ability of decision makers to make choices that will help keep populations safer. So international cooperation is key. And, you know, of course, for a such a global crisis. And there are ongoing efforts under the auspices of the United Nations to foster cooperation, like the United Nations Climate Change Conference, the COP conference, which will meet for the 27th time later this year. Why have these bodies been limited in dealing with climate change? Are the views of different countries too divergent on how to respond? Are the economic interests of, let's say, the rich countries too different from the rest of the world to effectively deal with this issue on a cooperative basis? Well, there's so many issues uh, underlying the lack of cooperation, and I think you've pointed to many of them. I would say that, first of all, there is agreement among the um, United Nations nations, at least 192, that climate change is primarily human caused, that we need to keep heating below 1.5 degrees Celsius to keep us safe, uh, and um, that we it's urgent to act now and that we need to uh, dramatically increase uh, decrease the amount of emissions going forward, as well as that adaptation is necessary. So um, there is agreement, and it's reflected in the reports issued by the International Panel on Climate Change, a UN group that supports these meetings, the Conference of the Parties, uh, and informs that work. So we have consensus about the problem and the steps that need to be taken. What breaks down is when you get to the individual economic interests of countries sometimes come into conflict with these global goals. You know, if we had the G7 uh, or the G20, uh, those are the um, biggest economies in the world, agree to cut their emissions, we would take care of a large percentage of this problem, at least 85% of the emissions come from a very small subset of countries. Uh, But we haven't seen the action at that level. And what we're seeing now is because of the inaction, a growing divide between the developed world, which bears more responsibility for the actual heating, and the developing world, which has two needs when it comes to climate change. First, some of them don't have uh, sufficient access to energy and those demands will grow. And you can think of Africa in particular where demands will grow uh, exponentially. They wanna use fossil fuels. If they use fossil fuels, we're gonna heat up even more. We know that every 10th of a degree causes much greater impact. So we, we need to control future emissions, including those from the developing world who've had really nothing to do with creating the problem of climate change, who want to have the kind of power, the electricity uh, availability that we have. And then those developing nations also have great needs for adaptation. 
partly because of where they are geographically. Some of them will suffer more. Pakistan is a great example. It's with among the top 10 nations vulnerable to natural hazards. Now, that would include earthquakes, uh, but also to natural hazards that are worsened by climate change. So these countries want help building the types of infrastructure and protection that developed countries already have. Now, our Protection may not be up to snuff for the future climate impacts, but we can add to that infrastructure and improve it. But we have already flood protections that just aren't available in a country like Pakistan or Bangladesh, which is also very threatened by flooding. And they want help with building those kinds of um, systems. But where's the money going to come from for both of those things, powering up plus protecting uh, their populations? And in this regard, the developed world has not honored its promises. It promised $100 billion a year by 2020. It hasn't honored that. And when it has given money, only about 20% of it has gone to adaptation, which has meant that these countries really are sitting uh, very exposed to really horrifyingly impactful, damaging, uh, and deadly events. So we have the schism that's getting bigger and bigger, uh, and I believe it will be much more evident at COP27, the 27th of these conferences of power parties that will occur in November in Egypt, where Pakistan heads a group of uh, 77 nations in the developing world. And it's already said, we want to talk about money. It's called phrase loss and damage in these uh, conference of the parties. But we want to talk about who's going to pay for all this. And that discussion will be a difficult one because the developed world has not ponied up in the way that it looks like uh, they need to. They, for example, they've only, uh, uh, I think it's Africa that needs $277 billion to be able to have a, cl a clean transition to electricity. And I think so far there's only been $30 billion provided. There is a heavy onus on our governments to take action um, that go beyond what have been done until now. and But doing so will increasingly be more difficult with the rising cost of taking action. But I want to conclude our discussion today on steps that individuals can take. And of course, this podcast is directed mainly for students like myself. So what should students do? What should individuals do? Well, I think there's a number of steps. Um, the first is just to speak about climate change. There was a recent polling, I believe it's by the uh, Yale Climate Center for Environmental Communications that um, found that many Americans underestimate how much their neighbors or their friends are concerned about climate change. And we are remarkably silent uh, in speaking about climate change. Um, we just don't raise it with people. Um, and that would be one easy step. Uh, for example, uh, when your family gathers at Thanksgiving, this should be a topic on the table. What are we going to do? But it should be a topic much more frequently uh, than that. The second is to inform yourself about what your elected leaders are doing about climate change. And we need leaders who uh, understand 
the threat from climate change and are offering solutions uh, to that threat. Uh, so informing yourselves and, and moving that issue up on the agenda and your determination as to whom to vote for uh, could be significant. Climate change affects all of us. We can see it out our windows now. It will affect our local economies. It's going to certainly lead to a more challenging future, uh, including for our children uh, and people across the globe. So we need leaders who are thinking and acting on climate. I think uh, the last thing is educate yourself about climate. And this I would say uh, is very important, but particularly for your, our young people. One of the things I know is that we do not have a workforce that is ready for climate change. I recently met with uh, military leaders um, and they confirmed for me that none of our service academies, the Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy, require education about climate change. Now, climate change has very significant impacts on military readiness, military operations, as well as national security when we see governments fail as a result of uh, climate worsened events. Important that we have leaders educated, but it's not a different story when you look at corporate America. A corporate America, typically the um, board members don't have education on climate change. In 2019, New York Stern Business School, New York University Stern Business School, reviewed the publicly available resumes of uh, something like 1,192 uh, board uh, members uh, of our top 100, uh, Fortune 100 companies. And they concluded that about five people reflected any environmental uh, background in their resumes. Well, unless board members are actively educating themselves about climate change, we are at great risk that they're only learning about climate change depending on uh, what news channel they choose to re to listen to and in a deeply polarized uh, context, uh, they may not be fully informed that climate change is going to happen. It happens irrespective of anyone pushing a button. It's not like nuclear war. And it will continue to affect us even if we cut our emissions to zero tomorrow just because there's a delayed uh, delay in the heating that occurs as a result of that blanket of pollution around the globe. So we need leaders who understand. And then if you go to our universities, there are some notable ex exceptions. My alma mater just created a school of sustainability at Stanford. Columbia has its own school. But I'd say for many 17-year-olds who want to understand climate because it's going to dominate uh, many aspects of their lives, if they type into their university, it may be hard to identify or their college a course of study to be prepared for climate change. You might find it in environmental sciences, uh, but it's typically pigeonholed and it's not a clear uh, course of study for someone to get ready. So I would urge, urge everyone to make sure that uh, particularly our young people, they're gaining expertise and knowledge about climate change. 
it is a nuanced field. It does require uh, study to begin to understand how it could play out. Uh, and so taking the advantage of educational opportunities to do that and self-education opportunities are very important. We need leaders who understand what's at stake. And I think that's part of the reason we haven't made as much progress is that some of our leadership, uh, particularly anyone who was uh, educated um, in the last uh, 40 years or so or 50 years ago, isn't, won't have had much education, if at all, about climate change. It just wasn't on the curricula. And still today, kids are at risk of graduating without any education. And I meet them. Uh, when I meet uh, students studying foreign, uh, foreign affairs, and I ask them, have they had any climate education? I would say it's uh, far fewer raise their hand uh, than those who indicate that they've never had any formal education. I think that has to change. So that would be my encouragement for the young people. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on a wide-ranging conversation on such an important topic. Well, thank you. And I would share this last thing with your audience is if you are looking for meaning and purpose in your work, I think focusing on climate change is one of the most rewarding areas to work in. And it certainly helps with uh, dealing with what I now read as eco-anxiety or worry about the climate, being engaged, helping find solutions, learning about this problem, and sharing ideas with others who want to have a better future is so personally rewarding and has really been one of the great joys in my professional career. So I urge everyone to learn more, to keep the anxiety at bay, but mostly just to find the purpose that this issue will give you in finding work that's highly meaningful. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.